listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured episode 201. Thank you again for being with us for so long. Also, don't forget that Belaboured is now on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash belaboured if you have got some cash to spare and want to help keep us in the class struggle. This week, we're taking a deep dive into Donald Trump's latest attempts to restrict immigration into the U.S. What's he done now and why, for how long, and how does it fit into his ongoing political project, as well as the narrative he's trying to create around COVID-19? We will talk about all of that and more, but first, the news. We are in the middle of a regular wave of museum worker organizing, and the pandemic has, if anything, sped it up. You can read our interviews with the Guggenheim workers and the Philadelphia Museum of Art workers over at the Descent website, and today we're bringing you another interview with the museum worker, Gabby Dodona, part of the United Museum Workers organizing drive across the Carnegie Museums in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We are a cross-museum group of employees from all four of the Carnegie Museums of Pittsburgh who are seeking to come together and form a union at our workplace. And the four museums involved are Carnegie Museum of Art, Carnegie Museum of Natural History, the Andy Warhol Museum, and the Carnegie Science Center. So about eight months ago, a small group of us um, in the Museum of Art specifically mm-hmm. decided that the, it was kind of time to take things further. We'd had conversations with management about working conditions, and we really just felt like our voices weren't being heard and were sort of actually being told to be quiet a little bit. Yeah. And so we sought out um, a couple of different unions and really in the end felt that a wall-to-wall union was the best option. And um, around the same time, the Carnegie Library workers had just successfully won their union election um, and they had partnered with United Steelworkers. And so in the end, United Steelworkers were a great fit and um, they've been helping us along the way as we navigate this process together. Yeah, so the steelworkers, of course, um, for those who don't know sort of the history of Pittsburgh and the history of Carnegie himself, um, could you tell us a little bit about that and why that makes the steelworkers sort of a a particularly poetic choice for the Carnegie (laughs) Museums and Libraries? No, of course. So uh, our museums and the library system as well were founded by Andrew Carnegie, uh, the steel magnet. And, um, you know, on paper, he would sometimes make comments that he was very pro-labor, but but really, in the end, we all know, you know, about the Homestead strike, he was very anti-labor union. Right. And so um, the United Steelworkers were really founded out of uh, a previous labor union that worked in steel, and especially Carnegie Steel in the Pittsburgh region. And so it is really fitting, poetic, and a little ironic that we're working with the union who uh, who has been such a thorn in the side <laughs> Uh, of Andrew Carnegie, and uh, we can't wait to to do this together. So tell us a little bit more about the specific issues at at your museum, at the other museums, um, that made people start thinking union. Communication has really been a a real apparent problem, and it, Mm -hmm. um, you know, just really goes beyond even immediate supervisor to employee um, relationships. It really, there is a deep communication problem at the core of the entire institution where decisions are being made unilaterally at the top with no input from people down below, and then we're expected to implement these policies. 
But I also have to say that um, wages and benefits are a huge concern of ours. Our wages are um, historically low, even compared to other museums in the Mid-Atlantic region. Um, our part-time staff lacks really any tangible benefits at all, but these are the people who are working right now on the floor, you know, and risking their lives during uh, during the pandemic. Yeah, so talk about, uh, right, I know that the Indian drive was going on before the pandemic, mm-hmm. but that seems to be kicking a lot of people's organizing into high gear. <laughs> it absolutely I, uh, ticked us into high gear. I mean, I think around the time the museums closed in March is really when our activity kicked into overdrive. Um, when our museums closed, um, over half of our staff was furloughed, and um, mm-hmm. and that process was very not transparent in the way that the workers were chosen to be furloughed or chosen to be considered quote essential. And um, and really, there have been so many there's been policies coming down the line about health and safety, and all of it you know doesn't take into account any of the people who actually have to do those jobs. And um, and so I yeah really the pandemic um, it's tricky timing but I think it's helping drive our message home that we need to come together to to make it through this safely. So you are now looking or actually in the middle of reopening, right? <laughs> we are. Our museums all open to the public um, two days ago on Monday. Just from having you know been on the floor this week. Um, I think visitors are coming back, which is good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're politely reminding everyone to please wear a mask and, you know, sanitize mm-hmm. their hands and all of that. It's still a little uncanny. And um, as mm-hmm. cases, um, you know, rise in our county, there's definitely a fear that we may have to close again. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, I think I'm personally excited and looking forward to things normalizing a bit. Yeah, and and so what's happened with the people who were furloughed as reopening starters? Yeah, most have been brought back. Um, some, though, I believe, have not been uh, recalled from furlough. But um, but many of that many of that recall happened, you know, only days before we reopened, and so there really hasn't been time to adequately be trained on new procedures. Yeah. So what are next steps for the union? Next steps are we're now in this exciting public phase and we're collecting uh, authorization cards from all eligible employees. And then uh, from there, we'll file with the National Labor, National Labor Relations Board excuse me, um, for an election. And we can't wait to win. That was Gabby Dodonna of the United Museum Workers Campaign. You can find out more about that union drive at our website, dissentmagazine.org. The Supreme Court handed an unexpected victory to hundreds of thousands of young immigrants recently when it blocked the Trump administration from terminating the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, or DACA. DACA was an Obama-era scheme that allowed undocumented young people who had come to the country as children with their families to gain temporary legal status and work authorization if they met certain criteria and passed a background check. Over the past eight years, the program has helped around 800,000 young people work legally and attend college without fear of deportation. The Trump administration tried to quash the program, but the court's 5-4 to four majority held that the White House had failed to provide an adequate reason for ending DACA. The ruling was somewhat unusual for this right-leaning court, and many DACA recipients who had been expecting the worst for months were much relieved when they found out that they would at least be able to hang on to their temporary legal status. 
Currently, it's renewable every two years, and who knows what will happen in another two years. It is still just a temporary reprieve, and it remains to be seen how the November elections could affect the future of DACA. Nelson Iraheda is one of those documented young people. He works as a Teamsters truck driver for a liquor distributor in Long Island, and shortly after the ruling came down, he talked about what DACA means to him. To be honest, it's been, it's been scary, you know, just having to live in fear that they're gonna, they were going to cancel it. And, you know, I've been paying my taxes ever since I got it and, you know, and been able to provide for my family. Since I'm, I'm the oldest and, you know, yeah, my father, um, he got deported in 2007. And, yeah, and then he lost his life in, uh, in El Salvador. So, yeah, yeah, so it's just been me provided for them. That must have been really scary. I mean, did the, was he in detention for a long time? Or Yes, he, uh, well, he had an order of deportation. And um, uh, I think they mistake, they mistake him with someone else. And um, the detectives arrested him and they saw that he had an order of deportation. Then he was sent into ICE and he got deported. Have the Teamsters been uh, supportive of DACA? Because I know that they actually, I think they have a bunch of members, I think, who probably have DACA. Yes, they they have. Um, actually, you know, my uh, the vice president of, of my local, he, uh, he did everything he could. He actually spoke to different attorneys, trying to see if there was, there was a way that, you know, the union could sponsor me. And you know, unfortunately, there there is no way. The only yeah, the only way is if you know, Congress approves a way for us to get a green card eventually. You know, I, I'm I'm glad that the Supreme Court was able to block it for the moment, but it's uh, it's just temporary. So you know, I, we don't know what's going to happen within two years. If they're you know eventually going to cancel it. That was Nelson Erhita, a dreamer and a teamster on Long Island. The Hanneman University Hospital in Philadelphia was closed last year after been having been bought out by a private equity firm, which was founded and run by a man named Joel Friedman. The hospital has been sitting empty since then, despite protests leading up to its closure and after the fact by its employees, patients, the community, and even Bernie Sanders, who used it as an example of what private equity does to institutions. Sanders held a rally outside of the hospital almost a year ago, but the hospital, which, according to the Philadelphia Inquirer, quote, had long served some of the city's poorest residents, end quote, closed anyway. And then the pandemic hit. City officials approached Friedman to see if they could reopen the hospital to use to treat or isolate COVID-19 patients. Friedman offered to sell it to the city for a below market rate or charge about a million dollars in rent per month. City council member Helen Gim told the Inquirer, quote, that building would be in use, but for Friedman's demand to profit from this deal as much as possible while we're in the midst of a global health crisis. I think that building being vacant right now as we face this is a complete symbol of what has gone wrong in the American healthcare system and private equity, end quote. 
activists with groups including Put People First Pennsylvania held protests, Philly socialists hung banners from I-676 that read Seize Hanneman, Free Healthcare, and Millionaires Hoard Hospitals, How Many Will Die. And then this weekend, nurses and healthcare workers attempted to take it back. An anonymous writer at It's Going Down describes the scene, quote, For a brief moment on Saturday, nurses, patients, and community members seized a shuttered hospital in Philadelphia and turned it over to the people to use as a clinic. Following a rally at City Hall, a crowd of around 100 people marched north the empty hospital tower, erected canopies, tables, and chairs, and began to attend to patients who had joined the march and were eager to receive care. They were the first people to be treated at the hospital since the pandemic began, during which the absentee owner kept its doors shut to the city in the hopes of forcing the city to pay a ransom, end quote. They marched under the banner of Care Not Cops to the site, which is right near Philly City Hall, where, inspired by the writer, explained, quote, the big samples set by the occupied Hilton in Minneapolis after the burning of the 3rd Precinct, and by the James Tlaib Dean houseless people's encampment up the Benjamin Franklin Parkway in Philadelphia, established two weeks before as well. They also took inspiration from the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords' provision of health care, and they set up shop and began offering treatment. But of course, no good deed goes unpunished, and with SWAT and other police circling, healthcare workers had to make a choice between being arrested and potentially losing their licenses, and being free to continue to care for the community. Priorities, after all. As the rates of infection continue to rise in much of the country, though, it's likely that this won't be the last time we see healthcare workers taking things into their own hands, as clearly we can't trust capital or local governments to sort it out and forget about the federal government. Amazon's Fulfillment Center in Shakopee, Minnesota, known as MSP1, has long been a focal point of worker organizing at the giant e-tailer. Staffed in large part by East African immigrants, the workers have challenged the company on various labor issues, ranging from the extremely high injury rate to a lack of religious accommodations in the workplace. But the COVID-19 pandemic has brought unprecedented challenges. In recent days, there were reports of an outbreak at the facility with some 88 workers diagnosed with the coronavirus. And although Amazon claims it is doing all it can to keep the massive fulfillment center sanitized and protect workers from infection, it boasts, for instance, that it is conducting temperature checks on workers and rearranging the workspace in order to practice social distancing and offering copious amounts of hand sanitizer, the workers have complained of a lack of transparency in the management. Those concerns were exacerbated by the discovery of a secret memo that showed that Amazon was apparently trying to minimize the crisis publicly, but was closely tracking which workers were getting sick and the of infection internally. It just wasn't disclosing this information to the workers. Instead, the company conveyed only vague information about new cases that they cropped up, but not hard numbers. In addition, the memo, which is thought to have been issued in mid-May, indicated that the virus was spreading much faster among workers than what the workers had been led to believe based on those notices circulated by the management. According to the advocacy network Athena, the workers at MSP1 had an infection rate that was several times higher than the surrounding community, which is extraordinary considering that this facility actually does a fairly good job of practicing social distancing. Advocates suspect that in Amazon facilities elsewhere, which have more lax infection control practices or are situated in a place with a higher rate of infection, workers might be even more at risk. And to top it all off, Amazon's memo indicated that the company's contact tracing efforts had only been done in about a third of the cases that had cropped up in the workforce. 
I spoke to William Stoltz, a picker at MSP1, about how he and his coworkers have been treated by Amazon during the pandemic. They knew how bad it was. They weren't telling us. They were resisting calls from workers to, um, you know, shut down the warehouse for, you know, two weeks just with pay, just to quarantine folks, um, to provide some kind of paid leave option for workers who are more vulnerable and to, um, and to bring back the ability for workers to just take, uh, to easily take um, unpaid time off. There had originally, at the start of the pandemic, put in a policy where workers could take like unlimited unpaid time off. Um, so the idea was that if you were feeling sick, you could just go home in the middle of the day, like, you know, and, and stay home. Like you don't have to talk to anybody. You don't have to worry. Am I going to lose your job? It's like, if, if, you're, if you're feeling sick, just get out. Um, and they got rid of that at the end of April, um, right as the pandemic was getting worse in my warehouse. And so, uh, yeah, and so we've just seen that while the pandemic has, has gotten worse, their, their approach has been to hide this information from workers um, and then pretend like, like everything is going great when, when it really has not been. And we can prove that now. If you like Belabored, another podcast that you might like is The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine hosted by Daniel Denver that features long, smart, and in-depth discussions of everything of interest to the left. Discussions with authors on books on organizing, capitalism, labor history, racism, mass incarceration, empire, and more. Past guests include Mike Davis, Kiangi Yamada-Taylor, Aziz Rana, me, Nancy Fraser, Nikhil Palsing, and many more. One recent episode that you might like is an interview with Kathy Cohen, Jason Perez, and Malika Jabali on the current uprisings, how they fit into the corona crisis, and the longer history of Black Lives Matter, and where they might go from here. You can subscribe to The Dig wherever you get podcasts and find their complete archives at thedigradio.com. In late June, Trump issued a proclamation titled, quote, Suspending Entry of Aliens Who Present a Risk to the U.S. Labor Market Following the Coronavirus Outbreak, unquote. That elaborately titled order will basically put a number of temporary work visa programs on hold until the end of 2020. These are visas that allow temporary migrant workers, sometimes known euphemistically as guest workers, to come to the U.S. to work short-term jobs in a range of industries, ranging from au pairs to hotel workers to computer programmers. As you might guess, the impact of the order isn't quite what the title suggests. It's unclear whether the order will have a significant impact on the labor market at all, given that the pandemic has already basically paralyzed work visa programs anyway, and Trump's claim that his move will help U.S. workers might be red meat to his base, but the problems with work visas run much deeper than the simple notion that immigrants are somehow taking quote-unquote American jobs. We talked to Daniel Costa, Director of Immigration Law and Policy Research at Economic Policy Institute, about the politics behind Trump's order and how guest worker programs really work. So Trump's latest order on immigration is titled Proclamation Suspending Entry of Aliens Who Present a Risk to the U.S. Labor Market Following the Coronavirus Outbreak, which is kind of a mouthful, but um, tell us what it actually does. Sure, this is a proclamation, which is essentially the same as a uh, executive order. 
And what it does is it suspends the issuance of uh, new temporary work visas to, uh, to migrants and their family members if they would be applying from abroad uh, between now and the end of the year. And I should note what these visas are. These are non-immigrant uh, visas. That's sort of the, the legal terminology for them. Essentially, it means temporary. And these visas uh, are issued in a number of categories for a number of different types of jobs. And um, uh, in, in these visa programs, usually the migrants um, are tied to one employer, one job, uh, so they can't switch easily if things go wrong in the workplace. They also um, usually pay recruitment fees, often illegally, uh, to obtain the uh, temporary jobs in the United States. And most of these visas actually do not allow uh, the migrants to uh, transition to lawful permanent resident status. So they don't get what are called green cards and can't become citizens. Um, and so this suspension uh, applies to a few major visa uh, classifications. It's the H-1B, which is for uh, essentially any job that requires a college degree, but most of them go to uh, workers that are, uh, uh, are employed in the tech industry. Uh, the H-2B visa, these are for low-wage jobs outside of agriculture, think um, mostly landscaping, but also construction, hospitality, working in restaurants, uh, we're doing uh, seafood processing. Then there's the L-1 visa, which is for intra-company transferees. It's really just moving um, personnel from one uh, branch uh, of a company from one country to another country. Um, it's also workers with specialized knowledge in the company. Um, then uh, you have the J-1 visa program, which is the State Department's Exchange Visitor Program. There's about 14 different categories in that program, but the executive order or the proclamation, sorry, only applies to the J-1 intern, trainee, teacher, camp counselor, au pair, and summer work travel programs. But uh, there's about 200,000 workers last year in, in all of those programs combined. So um, the other thing I'll say about it is that um, it doesn't apply to applicants for visas if they're already inside of the country. In most of these visa programs, most of the workers are outside of the country, but um, the H-1B visa program is an exception. Last year, about 60% of the new H-1Bs were issued to people who are already inside the country, and that was about 85,000 uh, of uh, about 85,000 that were issued to those to those workers, and then the rest were were outside of the country. So that means that you still end up uh, sort of privileging a certain class of worker. Uh, yes, and I mean H-1B is. Uh, one of the visas that are most important to the business community. Um, uh, the last comprehensive immigration bill that uh, passed the Senate but never got voted on in the House in 2013, uh, Senator uh, Dick Durbin, who was one of the authors of that comprehensive bill, said that he started calling the uh, comprehensive bill the H-1B bill. Uh, he said that in a hearing, and he said that was because uh, it was Kind of the top priority for people lobbying on the bill and it was a very it, it's been controversial it, it is um you know very important a lot of skilled workers come in through that visa program but it's also very clear that companies are paying uh workers less than they should i published a paper last month showing that 60 percent of the h-1b jobs uh, were certified by the labor department at a wage that was less than the um, local median wage for the job so um, it's an important visa. There's a, um, you know, uh, USCIS actually just published um, the first official estimate of the population of H-1B workers in the United States, and it's almost 600,000, and they're mostly concentrated in tech jobs. So um, it is an important visa. A lot of skilled and talented workers come in through it, but uh, it's also being used um, 
both to uh, underpaid workers and it's also used by companies that offshore jobs and that have an outsourcing model. In fact, 15 of the top 30 employers in that program are outsourcing companies. So um, there's a lot of issues with it, but I won't go into it more. <laughs> we'll ask you more about those in a little bit. Um, but yeah, Michelle, go ahead. So given that these suspensions only last until the end of the year, uh, can you talk about the actual like concrete impact it will have um, on the job market um, or uh, you know on these on these industries in general? Um, uh, it seemed like uh, when Trump did his initial suspension of green cards, that was kind of a kind of a gesture to his base uh, and made it trying to make it seem like he was actually you know doing something about um, preserving American jobs or whatever. But um, is this actually more substantive, or is it also um, more of a kind of a threat? Yeah, there's there's not a ton to talk about from a policy perspective. This is mostly political. Um, you know, the president is sort of trying to have it both ways. He's appeasing the anti-immigrant groups right before uh, an election without uh, doing all that much. Uh, he's obviously not he's not putting in place permanent reforms that would fix these programs that would raise wages for migrant workers and uh, allow U.S. workers in these programs to have. You know better access to jobs and 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 uh, that would uh, you know protect workers from retaliation in these programs. He's not doing any of that stuff that um, you know my institute has called for and other migrant worker advocates have been calling for for years. Instead, he's um, you know he's he's shutting off access to these visas, but he's doing it at a time when the entire immigration system is completely shut down right now. So uh, I don't actually think that anyone who was going to get a visa. Uh, is going to be stopped from getting a visa as a result of this proclamation. And what I mean by that is that you know the only work visas that are being processed right now are H-2A visas for um, uh, migrant workers that are employed in agriculture. The rest of the visas are not being uh, issued because of uh, you know consulates are not processing the visas uh, because of the social physical distancing guidelines that are in place because of the pandemic. So. Um, you know, honestly, the, the only place we'd really, the only time we'd see an impact from this is if the immigration system gets back up and running. Uh, I don't think that'll be before the end of the year. And if uh, uh, Trump wins re-election and then extends uh, the order. Uh, so there's a lot of ifs there. Um, so it's hard to know, you know, what the ultimate impact of this uh, will be. But right now, you know, the, the only groups that have been out there supporting this uh, this proclamation and that are happy about it are the uh, the anti-immigrant groups. Um, but those groups, you know, they, they are saying that this is justified because it's going to help American workers. It's going to put uh, more of the, the, the 20 to 30 million uh, workers, uh, American workers who are out of work back on the job. But um, the reality is that um, those anti-immigrant groups are not credible on the issue of caring about American workers. They have never, uh, you know, not once uh, supported policies that would actually benefit U.S. workers. They, they never come out in support of raising the minimum wage. They never come out in support of, uh, you know, paid sick days for workers. So, um, you know, they're, they're, they're happy about this, but virtually nobody else is. You know, my, my institute and others have been calling for reforms in these programs for, for a long time, not, not to get rid of the programs because they are one of the few pathways that migrants can come to the U.S. and actually contribute and work in key jobs. But uh, the structures of the programs are, you know, you know not very good. In most of, these, most of these programs, workers don't have protections. Uh, the Labor Department doesn't have an oversight role. 
uh, wage regulations or the lack of wage regulations allow migrant workers to be underpaid. So the programs need need to be fixed, but they are they are important. Um, but uh, Trump has not tried to fix them. He's basically put a pause on them when the programs aren't really even operating. Um, so uh, you know when when the when the suspension ends, we're going to go right back to having programs that uh, that allow migrants to be exploited and underpaid. Right, <laughs> back to the regular old status quo. Um, but just to clarify, I mean, is this actually going to? I imagine there are going to be some immigrants who would be applying for visas normally now who will see that whole process disrupted, right? I mean, um, or is that? delay completely attributed to just the general shutdown of, of, uh, of the system because of the pandemic. I guess I'm just wondering, I mean, what is, uh, what, what is, what is it being experienced right now by um, the workers who would otherwise be um, preparing to come to the U.S. on these visas? Um, are their lives being affected by this? Uh, yes. I mean, the, the one thing that this order has definitely done is cause chaos for workers who already had these visas. Um, families have been separated and there's been a lot of reporting on this recently. You know, people who have visas uh, that are valid right now are outside of the country. Now they can't get into the country because of the order. Some of them are outside of the country and have a valid visa but need a new stamp to get back into the country um, and, and aren't able to get it. And so we do have cases of, of you know, uh, uh, an H-1B spouse either being stuck uh, abroad or in the United States and separated from that spouse. Um, so that's, uh, that's, that's a real problem and that is a, a serious issue. Um, but as far as, you know, new work visas being issued, um, you know, the, 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 everything is basically on hold. Um, and part of that is because uh, consulates, when they issue visas, they usually have to interview people in person. And that's an important part of the process before they before they actually issue the visas, and that those interviews aren't aren't happening right now. The they the, the interviews have been waived for H two A workers uh, in agriculture, um, and this, you know the State Department even came out and said that H two A workers are a national security priority because of the food chain, and so that's um, so that's that you know that's that's but that's really the only thing that's that's happening in terms of uh, the system operating. So. All of that said, um, this is still kind of even politically kind of a mess, right? Because like some of Trump's buddies presumably want their guest workers and not just um, the farm workers who are, are already going to be a national security priority or whatever. Um, and like Trump's own golf courses make use of H2B workers. That, I mean, that that's right. And, you know, when when... Trump issued the first proclamation a couple of months before in April on uh, suspending a number of green cards. Uh, the New York Times reported that uh, the administration was planning on issuing something restricting temporary work visas that, that backed off because of a major backlash from businesses. Um, and uh, instead what they did is they put a provision in that proclamation that said that federal agencies needed to look into the impact of uh, temporary work visas and uh and and what they did a few months later is come out with this proclamation that uh that suspends uh work visas but the reality is that you know uh, businesses are are upset and uncertainty is is one of the things that they hate the most but the reality is that these businesses weren't able to get these visas right now anyway so i don't i don't know how how upset they are about the proclamation because 
like I said, the proclamation, you know, very clearly states that, you know, immigrants, uh, you know, are, are, are at fault for, you know, the economic collapse, which is complete, you know, a complete fabrication and not based on evidence. It's just, uh, it's just uh, Trump campaigning. But uh, at the same time, you know, those those companies weren't going to be able to get those visas, even even if this proclamation didn't exist. So, so I don't know, I don't know if, uh, if the companies that use these programs were able to see through that or not. They they certainly are on the record about being upset about this. And you know, I I was very skeptical that the Trump administration would do uh, anything in this area just because corporations. Um, value these visas so much, and because the Trump administration has been so subservient to the business community, um, and so I, I think that I'm not I'm not actually surprised by the way that Trump did this. He made it look like he's uh, taking a stand on temporary work visas and standing up uh, to the business community that lobbies on this. Um, but you know, in practice, uh, it, it, nothing has actually happened because this is. Temporary, no permanent reforms have, have happened in the programs, and uh, these visas weren't going to be issued anyway. Yeah. So this is, it in some ways fits into a pattern for Trump, right, is, is sort of making these big dramatic proclamations that then on paper are, are don't actually end up being as dramatic as they were. But um, so you kind of um, touched on this in that answer there, but I want to ask you to sort of elaborate on this. Is it how this shutting down the borders fits into a, like the broader narrative of the Trump administration, which is, you know, U.S. workers versus immigrant workers, and how that has now um, been broadened under the coronavirus to, to you know, blame immigrant workers for bringing in the virus. Well, this proclamation, you know, it's interesting, was not really uh, uh, targeted or, or not justified uh, by the by the health emergency. It was justified by 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 the labor market emergency. That's sort of how they framed it. They framed some of the restrictions on asylum, you know, based on, on health and, uh, and saying that they're worried that asylum seekers are gonna come into the country um, and bring, you know, the coronavirus into the country. But they didn't do that with, uh, with, with these orders. It's, they, they did it based on economic conditions, which, you know, I, I don't know what accounts for that, but it's, um, it's surprising that, you know, they're using both justifications and, in different areas, but one of, one of the other things that this uh, fits into sort of is that um, you know, the, the the Trump administration has done everything in its power to restrict pathways into the United States where workers might come in with um, a little bit of power and a path to citizenship and maybe become voters someday. You know, they've restricted uh, refugees to almost uh, to almost nothing, eighteen thousand. They've uh, essentially shut down the entire asylum system and, you know, asylum seekers, if they uh, end up getting asylum, they end up getting green cards and being able to stay permanently. Um, but when it comes to uh, uh, temporary work visas, uh, you know, the low-wage work visa programs have actually increased uh, under Trump. Um, the, uh, the H-1B visa has uh, stayed about the same, um, and, but there's been, you know, they've, they've done a lot that's been sort of symbolic and has uh, you know, increased costs on people who are applying for the visas and um, in terms of uh, asking for more information and requests for evidence that, that make the process a little more arduous. But um, in terms of the number of visas, you know, the numbers haven't gone down. Um, uh, so, and, and Trump, you know, uses undocumented workers, uh, guest workers in his companies. And so he, he's, he's shown that um, 
he's perfectly fine with immigrants coming into the country as long as they're not coming in with, uh, you know, a, a path to citizenship or a little, a little bit of power. As long as they're going to be exploited and underpaid, he's perfectly fine with the numbers going up. Now, this this proclamation on work visas obviously is a, a slight change from that, but it's it's really just a cosmetic change because, um, you know, I don't know if you know if Trump wins re-election and the and the and the immigration system. Uh, you know, starts functioning again. Will you know? Will Trump uh, renew this? There'll be a lot of pressure on him not to. Um, you know, I'm I'm not convinced that if he wins re-election, he's uh, he's not going to do whatever the business community wants him to do. Yeah. Um, to focus a little bit now on the H-2B program, particularly, I know uh, EPI has done various studies on how these programs are used um, and talked about some of the ways that uh, workers are continually exploited through this program. Um, can you talk about, you know, who exactly is filling these jobs? Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty different program from, uh, from H1s, which you hear more about, generally speaking. Um, so can you talk about what kinds of jobs these workers fill and also um, how they're structured um, and, and how they fit into the broader workforce in these industries because uh, I believe that you know uh, a lot of the H2B jobs are in industries where um, a lot of U.S. workers are also working. So. Yes, uh, the H2B you know it's um, it, it can be used um, for any job uh, that doesn't require a college degree essentially but it's pretty concentrated in a few occupations. Almost half of the H2Bs every year go to landscape, uh, jobs in landscaping. Uh, and then the top occupations after that every year are hospitality, working in restaurants, um, working in seafood processing, uh, working in construction. And um, there's a, an annual cap every year uh, for the program that is 66,000. Um, but uh, since 2016, every year, Congress has taken action through the appropriations uh, process to put in place riders that uh, give the uh, executive branch the authority to increase the number of H2Bs. So in the past couple of years, uh, the numbers have uh, been added to uh, every year, and that's been because of heavy lobbying from the industries that, that use those programs. Uh, about three quarters of the workers who come in on H2B are from Mexico, um, and then another you know, 10 or 15 percent uh, are from uh, Central America. Um, and um, you know, the, the I mean, the sort of broader importance of that program is that politically, it has been at the center of uh, of comprehensive immigration reform debates as well. It's been one of the Toughest, um, toughest issues to negotiate because uh, business, um, you know, the, the Chamber of Commerce and other other uh, industries, you know, their their main demand in uh, immigration policy debates is a uh, much larger and deregulated version of the H2B program. So it, it 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 sort of doesn't get discussed all that much, but it plays an outsized role in uh, in immigration reform. Debates and uh, you know the way the, the the visa works is a worker can come in uh, for up to nine months at a time. Although there are some ex exceptions that would allow them to stay longer in certain jobs, um, and they usually uh, uh, go through recruiters in their home countries and pay fees to come and be able to work in the United States. 
and um, they uh, you know can't easily switch jobs. So the way that the visa works is that particular job they're tied to a particular job and a particular employer. So if something goes wrong on the job, if the employer doesn't pay the wage they're supposed to, if they've been trapped, uh, you know anything goes wrong. Um, they are afraid to complain because if they get fired, they lose their visa status and become instantly deportable. Um, so, uh, so you know, as a result, uh, numerous migrant worker advocacy groups, um, government audits and reports, and even news exposés have shown, you know, just how uh, how many problems uh, are present in this program and why workers are so powerless. Some of my work has shown how they are have been underpaid. Uh, we published a paper showing that H2B and H2A workers are paid approximately the same as undocumented workers uh, who have, you know, really no power, no recourse because of their immigration status. Um, but that, that's sort of the, the, the basics of the program. Um, I mean, given that there is both this sort of, uh, you know, push to expand uh, H2Bs under a kind of uh, broader immigration reform scheme and uh, the fact that we have all this research coming out about how these workers are treated, um, you know, in some cases on par with undocumented workers, um, perhaps even worse in some situations. Uh, and for my reporting, you know, it, I, I feel like um, uh, these abuses just keep on coming up and they aren't really addressed. Um, I, I do, I do believe there was a, there was an attempt to reform uh, some of the H2B guidelines um, in Congress a few years ago. Can you talk about what happened with that and um, what the Department of Labor has done, if anything? And I guess, um, is this one of those cases where you actually do see um, a guest worker program being used to undercut conditions for um, workers across the U.S. as well? Well, I mean, the, you know, the, the the debate about the H2B program, just uh, even in the last decade, is a uh, very long and dark rabbit hole that I won't go into. But just to, to, to summarize a little bit about it, which you know I think what you're referring to is, um, you know, as the Bush administration was leaving office, they uh, put in place a bunch of uh, regulations or repeals of regulations um, uh, right before the Obama administration uh, took over. And one of the, uh, the regulations that they put in place was to change how the wage rule uh, for the H-2B uh, program was calculated. So if you're an employer and you want to hire an H-2B worker, you're supposed to pay a wage that kind of corresponds to the, uh, what the job is and where the job is located. And so what uh, the Bush administration did is um, take the H-1B program and use the wage rule that um, that, that program uses is, uses and applied it to the H-2B. Now, the problem with that is that the H-1B visa program is um, for workers with college degrees and the H-2B job is, for, the H-2B program is for workers, uh, you know, that don't have college degrees and often the jobs don't require much experience at all. Um, and the H-1B program, I won't go into it uh, at length, but it's got four wage levels. Each one of those is supposed to correspond to uh, um, uh, a combination of uh, uh, education and experience, although you know they, they don't do a very good job of it. And as I've written before, it, it leads to workers being paid uh, very low wages. Uh, the level one wage is a 17th wage percentile based on the wages surveyed in an occupation and area. Level two 
is the 34th percentile, and level three is the uh, the local median wage for the job, and level four is just above it. And so what ended up happening, the practical impact of that, was that um, H-2B jobs were mostly being certified at the level one wage, which is the 17th wage percentile. To, to put some numbers to that, what that meant is if an employer wanted to hire a landscaper in Baltimore, uh, the going rate around the time was about $13 an hour. Um, under the H-2B program, they could advertise those jobs at $9 an hour, which was the level one wage, which meant that a lot of workers didn't apply for those jobs, which created sort of a fake labor shortage. And then employers would say, look, no, nobody wants to apply for these jobs. I, I need these H-2Bs. We need more H-2Bs. Um, so what you end up having, and this is the labor department uh, later on uh, showed through their own analysis when putting out new regulations that, you know, something like 85 to 90 percent of the, of the jobs that were being certified in H-2B were at wages that were much lower than whatever the going rate was for the job in the area. Um, so that, that after that, you know, the, the Obama administration, once they came into power, they were sued very early on by a group of migrant worker advocates um, in Pennsylvania. And uh, they uh, basically wanted to, they said that the, uh, you know, that the Bush wage rule was uh, done illegally uh, through, the, uh, through the APA, that it wasn't done properly. And they, they won that case. And so the Obama administration uh, needed to put out a new wage rule. And they uh, you know, issued a, a, a notice and comment for a, a new wage rule and took, took public comment on it. And uh, before they were able to get that wage rule out, which essentially would require that employers paid at least the local average wage for the jobs, um, they were sued. And Congress uh, put in place appropriations riders not allowing the Department of Labor to um, to put into force these new wage rules. So there was legal battles and congressional appropriations going back and forth between 2010 and 2015 to stop uh, the Obama administration's attempt to fix the wage rule. And during that whole time, the old wage rule stayed in place. And so um, companies were you know, um, uh, uh, able to undercut wages by you know, $3, $4 an hour in a lot of cases um, for, for just almost all of the, all of the jobs. Uh, finally, in 2015, uh, the Obama administration issued a joint regulation with DHS that would require this local average wage to be paid. And so um, since then, we've had you know, a better wage rule, but the Obama administration kept in place a pretty big loophole, which is the private wage survey in H2B. And that means that uh, employers, if they don't think that um, the wage, uh, the right wage rule, you know, uh, that the government data doesn't show the right wage for that job, they can go and use you know, their own private wage survey. They can get a company to do a survey or they can do their own survey and then they'll submit that to the labor department and the department will just use that wage. And um, you can probably guess that um, employers never <laughs> do private wage surveys to raise the wage. It's, uh, it's always to lower, lower the wage. And, and I wonder so what the, the survey said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, who knows? And, uh, you know, it's uh, just a, they're pure, purely doing it for scientific reasons, I'm sure. But um, you know the, the Labor Department, the Obama administration did a, a, a good job of kind of restricting the, the cases and where you could use those surveys and what kind of surveys you could use with the regulations that they put out. So they, they did an okay job of that. But Congress, uh, you know, when they were uh, they, when they got lobbied on this stuff in those same riders where they allowed the exec executive branch to increase the number of HTBs, they also put in place a rider that's been there for the last few years that. Um, require the Labor Department to open back up the ability to use private wage surveys. 
I've, I've showed, you know, a case of, uh, um, of uh, in Maryland of people who are doing seafood processing, crab picking specifically, uh, where uh, by using private wage surveys, companies are able to pay about $3 an hour less, uh, you know, per worker. And so, you know, you're talking about real money. You're talking about somebody who stays here six, seven, eight, nine months. Uh, they're earning, you know, working full time and earning $3 an hour less than they otherwise would have. You can see why why companies prioritize these visas on top of having the benefit that they know that the workers aren't going to leave in the middle of the season to go earn an, a dollar an hour more at, at you know at, at the employer down the street. Can you talk about like this um, this canard of of marriage based immigration that's sort of caught on with the right and and how that fits into the broader politics surrounding this program and and immigration reform in general? Because um, it also seems like uh, you know, this is something that uh, even immigration hardliners have also um, discussed, but it seems to mean different things to different people. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the 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 real definition of what uh, Republicans and Trump administration mean by merit-based immigration is reducing the number of green cards, uh, number of permanent residents uh, for extended family members. And the diversity program. So, you know, most of uh, most of the green cards that are issued every year, both the people coming from abroad and adjusting status from inside the country, go uh, through the family uh, family-based programs. That's either people who are uh, married to U.S. citizens or um, or the children of U.S. citizens, or through one of the family preferences, which is for you know, siblings of uh, siblings of U.S. citizens or. Um, or family members of people who have green cards. And so the uh, Trump administration and uh, um, you know, uh, Senator Tom Cotton, who's proposed the RAISE Act, which would do uh, a version of this, you know, really are looking at uh, cutting those, uh, those visas that um, come through what they refer to um, uh, derogatorily as uh, chain migration. So basically, uh, uh, people who come in through through, the, through those visas, and they'd like to increase the share of visas um, that come through the employment-based uh, system. So right now we have you know five different employment-based preferences for green cards. Um, there's about 140,000 issued every year. It's usually about 12 or 13 percent of the green cards that are issued versus about uh, about two thirds that are issued uh, in the family-based program. So. Um, they'd like to give essentially employers more control over who gets green cards, um, so it kind of you know fits in with uh, you know the Trump administration being a very corporate controlled and dominated uh, administration, and they want to cut the number of visas that come through the diversity visa program. This is about fifty thousand green cards every year that are um, given to people through a lottery system that goes to people who are from countries that are typically underrepresented in the US immigration system. So think um, the Middle East and Africa and Eastern Europe. Um, so that's that that's that's really what they mean. It's give, it give employers more control over the system and, and cut out uh, the what they refer to as as chain migration or or you know the extended family migration. Um, when it yeah, comes yeah. to temporary work visas, I mean they've they've sort of not really uh, said too much about how this would fit in. Um, you know, it, you know it, the, the Trump administration, uh, led by uh, uh, Jared Kushner in the White House, has, has been uh, working on an immigration plan that they were supposed to propose. That has been reported on widely. That you know they had proposed legislation. They were thinking through what this new merit-based system was going to be. 
I was assuming it would probably have been out by now so that Trump could campaign on it. Um, but uh, I, you know, I assume the coronavirus maybe threw a wrench in, in, into all that. But um, uh, that's that, that's essentially what it means. And like Senator Tom Cotton's version of merit-based immigration means cutting the numbers of green cards in half uh, from a million to about five hundred thousand, uh, which uh, is you know uh, using uh, a lot of these cuts that I that I that I mentioned. So thinking a little bit beyond the Trump administration right now, um, from a labor rights standpoint, what should we make of these? guest worker programs in general? I mean, um, how could these programs be restructured or what could they be replaced with um, in a way that would be uh, more fair or more just to workers on, on both sides of the border? Um, and uh, do you see a, a place for this type of system um, in, in immigration, in a reformed immigration system? And, and I guess, you know, along with that, um, are there any um, are there any reforms that, that you can think of or that have been proposed that would offer um, people who are in guest worker status right now uh, some kind of pathway to uh, permanency or legal residency um, and eventually citizenship? Yeah, so, um, so you know, it, it, you're, you're right on these, these programs do not, uh, you know, do not allow equal rights. You know, workers don't, don't have equal rights under these programs. And you just, you know, contrast that with uh, immigrants who come in with green cards who do have equal rights and can work uh, almost anywhere. And uh, and and you see that with, uh, you know, higher wages for people who have green cards and citizenship and lower poverty rates. And um, so I think there's a among, you know, worker advocates and labor advocates and micro migrant worker advocates, I think there's a pretty decent consensus that these programs are exploitative and need to be Reformed. I've been in a lot of uh, discussions with uh, advocates uh, from other countries, and I think uh, it's a pretty, pretty obvious and important issue there as well. I mean, in the Middle East, you have the Kapala system, which is sort of a, a, an even worse system of it than we have here, but not all that different. So, um, you know, I, I do think a restructuring of the U.S. immigration system would move away from this these structures and and move more towards uh, allowing people to come in with green cards, uh, you know, right away. Um, I, I mean, I think there's, um, you know, the, our system is not very data driven, and uh, you know, we have very we have very bad immigration data when it comes to labor migration, and that that needs to be something that needs to be fixed in a way that would allow us to, uh, you know, set realistic, uh, flexible targets every year. You know, the caps that we have in place for a lot of these programs have been in place since 1990. They haven't been uh, reformed in any real way because, you know, Congress doesn't like to legislate. Um, so, you know, we've seen a vast expansion of temporary visas uh, since uh, the 1990 Immigration Act, while we've seen the number of green cards for migrant workers stay essentially uh, essentially flat. And, um, and that's all happened without legislation. But you know, I'd like to see a reforming of the uh, of the immigration system where we have something like a permanent commission on immigration in the labor market, something like what the United Kingdom has, which is called the Migrant uh, Migration Advisory Committee, where you have experts, you know, uh, studying uh, data about uh, you know key occupations that immigrants come in, seeing if wages are going up, uh, evaluating claims from from uh, from employers. Uh, talking to unions, uh, getting a, having sort of a holistic approach, and maybe having something like an occupational shortage list when we actually have shortages 
you know, that are based on evidence and data and talking to employers and unions, um, then you have a list and maybe, you know, migrants can be fast tracked through, through those occupations. But, um, you know, that, you know, we need a pretty major reform and I, I would like to move away from these temporary statuses just because they're so inherently bad in terms of, in terms of worker rights. But, you know, if there's going to be a place for temporary uh, work visas, I mean, I think I, I think there are some pretty easy reforms uh, uh, that could be done. Uh, essentially, you would have to ensure that you know local workers have an opportunity to apply for these for, for the jobs before an employer can go and hire a migrant worker. I think you need that just to have credibility in the system and have credibility with the public that the that the programs aren't being used to undercut wages, and that's. You know, um, like the H-1B program, for instance, most people seem to think that um, employers have to test the labor market and check if there's an available worker before they hire an H-1B worker, but that's just not the case. They can actually bypass the U.S. labor market altogether and go hire an H-1B worker, and uh, you know, most of them come in at a wage that is less than the local average. And so that that that's a you know valid criticism of that program that it's not operating as I, I think it, it should. Um, so that needs to be one element. The second element is that when migrants come in, they should never be paid less than the local average wage for the job. You should just um, that 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 ensures you know that that downward pressure isn't put on the wages of U.S. workers, and it also ensures that migrants are not being underpaid for the real value of their labor. Uh, that's that's you know I, I think that's a pretty simple rule that uh, people can can understand, but. Um, you know, it, it's come up and been discussed in hearings and uh, in congressional hearings and businesses uh, are pretty clear that they don't want to see that happen and have been the main reason that hasn't happened. And then the, the, the third major element would be to reduce uh, the length of time uh, that these uh, temporary statuses can last. I mean, we're seeing people in H-1B be in a temporary uh, indentured status for uh, you know the visa last six years, but if they're on the path to a green card, they can stay in that um, they can stay in that temporary status for 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, I, I think that you know if there's going to be a role for these temporary statuses, they should last no more than a year or 18 months, and then the worker should have a you know a quick uh, transition to permanent residence, and the worker should control that path to permanent residence. Uh, as it is now, you know, H2Bs, H2A workers, J1s, they don't have a path to permanent residence at all. Uh, the only ones that really have a, a viable path for residence are H1B workers. Uh, but that path is controlled by employers. So the H1B worker, uh, you know, the temporary status can last six years, but they have to convince their employer to, to, uh, to, put, uh, to apply for a green card for them, basically to put them in, in that green card process. And while they're in that process, you know, they don't want to speak up uh, if things go wrong on the job because they don't want they, you know, the employer to decide, well, maybe I won't get a green card for you. And they don't, uh, you know, they don't want to get fired or laid off because they'll lose their status and they'll have to go back to their home country. And if they've already been here for six years, sometimes, you know, they, uh, they have children who are born here and are U.S. citizens or, you know, they're, they're integrating into the United States. And so it's just, it's just unfair to... Um, you know, to uh, to have workers stay in those statuses and to have let employers control, uh, you know, control that path through a green card because they just have, uh, you know, it's way too much bargaining power for, for the employer. So let guest workers, you know, quickly transition in a year, 18 months to a green card without having to rely on the employer. I mean, I think those those three things right there would, uh, you know, 
would fix uh, most of what's wrong with uh, with the program. There's some other stuff like uh, the recruitment chain. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of the abuses of guest workers happen uh, as they're being recruited and coming over to the United States. You know, they pay illegal fees. Sometimes the job isn't the job that they were promised. So, um, you know, there's been proposals on on how to fix that as well. You need some sort of a, a registration system for recruitment. But um, but I guess those are the main elements. I, I think those are pretty simple things that people can wrap their head around. Um, but the way it works now, you know, we have so many different visa programs. Each of them are for uh, different types of jobs. They have their own history and uh, complex regulations. And, um, and uh, you know, the only people that really know a lot about them are the, uh, the companies that use them. And so they're very effective when they lobby Congress about them. Um, and it makes it difficult to, to get reforms in place. And, you know, this isn't just a Republican problem. Uh, you know, the, the, the visa programs have been operating this way under both uh, Republican and Democratic administrations. So, um, so it's, uh, you know, it, it, it crosses both parties. And then, there, you know, there have, there have been some proposals that are out there that are, that are pretty good. Uh, you know, one that, you know, is worth talking about is the, uh, in the H-1B program, the uh, German Grassley Bill. I mean, Senator Durbin, you know, one of the more uh, progressive senators, uh, Senator Grassley is one of the more uh, conservative uh, senators and very skeptical of immigration. They've, they've had a proposal for, you know, over a decade uh, that's been in the Senate to uh, reform the H-1B program and the L-1 program. And it's been introduced in that, it was reintroduced recently and uh, introduced in the House. And it's got other progressives who have signed on to it, like Sherrod Brown, Bernie Sanders, uh, Ro Khanna in the House. Um, that support this, and all it does is, uh, you know, require that uh, companies uh, advertise jobs to U.S. workers before they hire H-1B workers, and pay H-1B workers no less than the than the, the local median wage. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't uh, it doesn't uh, allow them to automatically transition to green cards. I, I would like to see that someday, but but the kind of the two main problems with the program it would fix, and it you know very it's a very simple solution, but. Um, you know, the tech industry has lobbied hard against it for uh, as long as it's been around, and that's why it hasn't gotten anywhere. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was Daniel Costa from the Economic Policy Institute. We will put links to his work and more up at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org. And now it is time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. This week, I had a few pieces in the running, but I finally went with Sophie Elmhurst at The Guardian with a long piece focused on the work of one hospital cleaning worker in London, a leader in her union and a powerful voice for the idea that cleaning work too is skilled labor. It's titled, You Have to Take Action, One Hospital Cleaner's Journey Through the Pandemic, and the piece follows Ernesta Natcote, a cleaner at Lewisham Hospital. Ernesta was there when London's first case of COVID-19 was confirmed, and she has been there since. Elmhurst writes, quote, Ernesta has been cleaning the hospital for 11 years, ever since she first came to London. She arrives just before the start of her shift at 6.30 a.m., clocks in and goes to clean the pediatric operating theaters, changing rooms, and corridors. Over the years, she has come to know these rooms intimately, every corner, every surface, every tap. Ernesta has a certain status in the hospital. 
At 57, she is older than many of her colleagues, a grandmother and an old timer in a workforce where people tend to come and go. But she's also the representative for the cleaners union, GMB, one of the largest British general trade unions. Ernesta helps her colleagues if they're in trouble or if there's a problem with their pay. People come up to me in the hospital and they want advice. It's a lot, but I'm very pleased to tell them, she told Elmhurst. And if someone follows my instructions, they come back and say, God bless you, God bless you. Everyone knows Ernesta. Walk down the road with her at the end of a shift, and you have to stop every few seconds as she greets colleagues. Madam, you okay? End quote. Ernesta is also the poster worker for the outsourcing problem that plagues the National Health Service, as it does, well, any private businesses. Cleaning workers work in the NHS, but for a variety of private companies. Ernesta has been at the same hospital for 11 years, but in that time she's worked for four different companies, Elmhurst writes, quote, PSR, then Initial, then Interserve, who acquired Initial, and now ISS, a Danish multinational. ISS is the largest cleaning company in the world, employing nearly 500,000 people globally, with a revenue in 2019 of 9.4 billion pounds and a profit of 395 million pounds, end quote. So two years ago, Ernesta began to organize. She joined the union, became a leader, and with all that, during the pandemic, she still watched her colleagues die. Elmhurst notes, quote, The pandemic has revealed what was always obvious to Ernesta. A hospital can't function without its cleaners. They are as vital to its purpose as any of the other frontline staff and equally at risk. It's been hard over the years for the Conservative Party to suggest actually privatizing the NHS, so instead they privatize it piece by piece, starting with the pieces that have the least power, workers like Ernesta. There was a proposal recently to take the workers back in-house, a key demand of many of the unions representing outsourced workers. Elmhurst writes, quote, They would then qualify for NHS benefits, better pay, access to the NHS pension scheme, and vastly improved sick pay arrangement. An NHS employee is entitled to one month full pay and two months half pay for sickness in their first year of service, and these allowances increase year on year. Under ISS, the cleaners receive full sick pay from the third day of illness, and it lasts for as many days as the number of credits they have built up. They receive a single credit for every month in which they haven't taken time off work, and if their credits run out, their pay reverts to the statutory rate of £96 a week. End quote. One of the reasons that I like this piece so much is it stresses that workers like Ernesta are a key part of the hospital workforce, though, as our guest Eileen Boris stressed on this podcast a while back, certain workers who work with bodies and dirt tend to be thought of as unskilled and less important, Elmhurst argues otherwise. Quote, before the routine outsourcing of such contracts, Cleaners and porters were part of the NHS team, managed on the ward, overseen by clinical staff. Ernesta and many of her colleagues still see themselves as NHS workers, and in their view, their role is clinical. Good cleaning stops infection. It prevents someone from coming into hospital with one illness and leaving with another. If it wasn't for them, a consultant doctor at Lewisham told her, the rest of us would be entirely unable to do our jobs, end quote. Ernesta cleans the operating theaters, the hardest job and the most intensive. It is most definitely skilled labor, and she knows it. She is an immigrant. She speaks three languages. She is still the type of worker being targeted by the Tories' immigration bill, even as her work has doubtless saved lives during this pandemic. 
Ernesta and the others fought for a pay raise to the London living wage. Yes, they were making less than what it takes to live in the city where they work. But when the pandemic hit, they stepped up even as many of them got ill. Ernesta didn't. She worked straight through once for 13 days in a row. And then on top of all that, the workers didn't get paid properly. They held a walkout protest at shift change, pulling workers from both shifts and got their pay, though they've still had to fight for equal treatment, for PPE, for the ultimate goal of being in-house. Separation is something they feel when the public claps for and thanks the NHS, Elmhurst writes, quote, but often Ernesta has felt that all this public sentiment wasn't meant for her. During the pandemic, as gifts came into the hospital for NHS workers, she was acutely aware of the cleaners not officially fitting into that category. The dividing line between them and the NHS exists not in the cleaners' minds or the day-to-day reality of their work, but in everything else. Their pay, their benefits, their uniforms, their professional status, their public recognition. End quote. But their work matters, and their organizing has reminded their bosses of that fact. There's a good chance that you have ordered something from Amazon over the past few months. It's okay to admit it. Even those of us who loathe Jeff Bezos' gigantic ego and are disgusted by the company's deals with the surveillance state, sadly, it is still extremely difficult sometimes to avoid using this service when everyone is sheltering at home and -and brick-and-mortar retail shops in our neighborhoods are closed. The Real Cost of Amazon, a long investigative piece by Shirin Jafari and Jason Del Rey at Vox, is my pick for ARG. And it talks about the power of Amazon from another angle, the tightening grip over the lives of its workers. In reality, these two types of control, Amazon's concentrated power in the retail market, as well as its extreme capacity to micromanage workers' everyday behavior down to the second, are inextricably intertwined. The web of dependency on Amazon is so ingrained in our social structure that, although we may sometimes feel like we're choosing to shop at our own discretion, hence we get Amazon guilt because we don't want to support a big evil corporation, The pandemic has highlighted all the ways that what passes for consumer choice in the retail market these days is actually more the byproduct of stealthy marketing manipulation. Jafari and Delray write, as millions of other Americans have lost their jobs and are struggling to afford necessities, Amazon and companies like it are reaping record sales and hiring hundreds of thousands of workers to staff their facilities, deliver products, and risk exposure to a virus that's already killed more than 125,000 people in the U.S. as of late June, unquote. Given how much we rely on Amazon for consumption or for employment or both, as Stuart Applebaum of the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union said, quote, other employers feel that if they want to survive, they have to find a way to change their working conditions to replicate Amazon. And that's exactly what we don't want. We don't want Amazon to be the model for what working is going to be like or what the future of work is going to look like, unquote. The pandemic, then, is an interesting barometer for the degree of vulnerability created by this concentrated corporate power in the supply chain. Amazon is seeing a boom in sales because of the pandemic, but its workforce is being stressed and stretched like never before. Meanwhile, an untold number of workers have fallen ill with the coronavirus. In an impressive feat of digital organizing, one Amazon employee actually tracked the cases of COVID-19 at Amazon through crowdsourced reports from across the country and came up with about 1,600 cases. But the true number could be many times higher. Amazon doesn't disclose those. 
Despite the pay hikes workers were granted during the pandemic, Amazon's operations seem to be structured precisely to limit human empathy. A former senior HR manager commented that the focus on performance metrics, which has workers bustling around at a frenzied pace in the warehouse trying to keep up with robots, makes for a very dehumanizing managerial culture. They said, quote, algorithms can be very, very dangerous. And that's where Amazon is right now. There is no other company on the planet that is more efficient. But the downside is you take people who don't have life experiences or just don't have empathy, and it becomes very easy to look at the data as an end-all be-all as opposed to a guide, unquote. Workplace organizing might be able to counter some of that Tayloristic managerial pressure. And there has been some talk of unionization with big unions like the Retail Workers, United Food and Commercial Workers, and Service Employees International Union doing outreach at fulfillment centers. Still, it's unclear whether any concrete unions will form, even though many Amazon workers have engaged in protests, walkouts, and other actions in recent months. Amazon workers are putting a lot on the line every time they dare speak out publicly against their employer. And a number of workers have actually been fired after speaking out publicly. Critics have accused the company of targeting prominent Black organizers in the workforce, saying it's a reflection of a racist culture within the company's corporate hierarchy. Well, some of those organizing efforts have been frustrated and suppressed during the pandemic. We also see mounting social unrest as COVID-19 surges once again across the country, alongside undulating waves of protests against systemic racism around the world. So there's plenty of social frustration going around, and some of that energy could be channeled into a campaign against a corporate overlord that is becoming ever more dominant in our communities. So far, there are no indications that consumers are veering away from Amazon due to the ethical qualms over the way it treats its workers. But recent surveys suggest that people are, for whatever reason, souring on the Amazon brand. Now, that could just be because their latest bulk order of hand sanitizer was delayed, but it might also be that Amazon is underestimating the political sophistication of its customers. Chris Smalls, a former worker and organizer who was unceremoniously fired after he participated in a protest at his fulfillment center in New York, told Vox that Amazon doesn't really care about individual workers. Quote, it's never going to be Amazon versus Chris Smalls, he said. It's Amazon versus the people, unquote. Amazon may think that it can compartmentalize the public into two functional groups, consumers and workers. But once those two groups start to build mutual empathy and solidarity, then they'll start to realize that while we may depend on Amazon for a lot of things, Amazon is more dependent on us. Its power relies on our labor and our money. And while our choices may be constrained by Amazon's dominance in the retail and labor markets, we also have the right not to comply. And that's a wrap for this episode of Belabored. Thanks again to Colin for making us sound good. And if you like what you heard, please visit our archives at dissentmagazine.org. And there you can also become a sustaining member of this podcast. You can also donate to us through our new Patreon, which we just set up, and we'll link to that on our show page. And we have set up some very nice labor-oriented gifts to thank you for contributing to our journalism. And for our next episode, we want to hear from you. So please get in touch if you are working on the front lines of our healthcare system, if you're trying to organize workers in the arts, if you are working at Amazon and trying to cope with the next resurgence of COVID-19 in your area, get in touch with us at hashtag belabored on Twitter, or you can email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Stay safe, mask up, and over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belabored. <laughs>